Today's sermon comes from Isaiah 51. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake is in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab and Mises, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransom to the Lord shall return, and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk the dregs, the bowl, the cup of Sagarin. There is none to guide her among all the sons she is born. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street. Like an antelope in a net, they are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath, you shall drink no more. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors, who have said to you, God down that we may pass over, and you have made your back like the ground, and like the street for them to pass over. There's a movie that came out back in 1999, that was a while back, but it's a movie that has tended to have these kind of uh, themes that continue to run through Discussions in our culture. Some of you that are young aren't even necessarily born then. But it was a movie, it's called The Matrix. And there's this classic scene in this movie. It was a sci fi action film. And there's this classic scene where Neo, who's the main character in the movie, is offered this choice between taking a red pill or a blue pill. And if he takes the red pill, the truth would be revealed to him about the matrix. And if he took the blue pill, he would forget everything and just go back to his former life. And and following that movie, because it was a very popular movie in our culture, that red pill, blue pill paradigm really began to represent two approaches to life. A life that desired for the truth to be revealed even if it was unsettling and life-changing. Or a life that didn't want the truth because it preferred to live in denial or to live in darkness. Now, another way we talk about that paradigm is having the curtain pulled back. You know, I I saw the curtain pulled back, and I saw behind the curtain of this organization, or of this church, and I wish I would have never seen behind the curtain. 
You know, that desire, just, I, I, you know, I, I'd rather live in denial and darkness than to see the raw truth. The Bible has its own description of this paradigm. It doesn't use red pill, blue pill terminology or pulling the curtain back. But the terminology the Bible uses is being awake or being asleep. In fact, throughout the Old and New Testament, there are numerous calls from God to his people to wake up. It's consistent, this call to wake up, because oftentimes we are half awake. We're in this kind of slumber, living quiet lives of desperation. And God says, I didn't create you to live half awake, slumbering around, living a quiet life of desperation. I want you to wake up. In Isaiah 51, this is the very place we find God's people. Israel's in exile. They're half awake, they're slumbering around, they're living a quiet life of desperation. And so God comes to them through the prophet Isaiah in this chapter 51, and in verse 17 he says, Wake yourself, wake yourself. In other words, wake up. Wake up. The question is, what were they to wake up to? And the question today is, what are you to wake up to? First, to the real Battle. Look at verse 9. Again, this wake up language is used, but in verse 9, Isaiah uses it of God. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Arm of the Lord is this very vivid phrase that shows up throughout the Old Testament. One of the very vivid uses of it shows up right after God's people come through the Red Sea. Out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt, they're finally freed. Come through the Red Sea, and we read in Exodus 15, 16. Terror and dread fall upon them. That's speaking of them in Egypt. Those who had tormented and oppressed God's people for so many years. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still at the stone. So your people, O oh Lord, pass by. So the people pass by whom you have purchased. And this is the very event that Isaiah is referring to here in chapter 51, verse 10. When he says, Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And then verse 9, Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces? Well, who's Rahab? In, in Isaiah 30, Egypt is called Rahab. He's speaking about Egypt there. This is, this is battle language. This is language of a, of a hero God rescuing his people. This is a heroic battle. This is a rescue. And it doesn't stop there. Isaiah takes it a step further. In the verse 9 when he says, Who pierced the dragon. More battle language, but what's that referring to? Well, Isaiah is actually using a language from the culture of the day. When he refers to piercing the dragon, the, the, the Canaan culture 
They had, a, had tales and stories of a great sea dragon that brought about evil and chaos that was slain by a hero god. That, that was a story in the culture. And Isaiah is taking this culture story and bringing it in to say God is the hero God of Exodus and he's the hero God of human history who is rescuing his people out of the domain of darkness, out of evil. It's this amazing story of a rescue unfolding. And yet I'm afraid in our day and certainly in our culture that we have sanitized Christianity. And by that, I mean that we have lost sight of the great heroic story of a God fighting for, sacrificing for, rescuing his people out of the clutches of darkness, out of the clutches of sin, out of the clutches of evil. Now, while we may have sanitized Christianity, What's interesting is we have not lost the desire to be caught up in such a battle and such a story. That's why we love movies that are about a heroic rescue. We love those kind of movies where this hero comes in and, and sacrifices and fights and battles to rescue an oppressed people. And we come alive to those movies. I remember when, when Braveheart, another old movie, but when Braveheart came out, I remember watching that movie as a young adult, and I got out of the movie theater, and I wanted to go conquer the world. I wanted to run through a brick wall. I was, it was a, a movie that just resonated deeply. Why? Because we are made in the image of God. And we're made in the image of a God who goes to battle. A God who fights, a God who sacrifices, a God who bleeds and has bled to rescue his people. There's nothing sanitized about that. The story of rescue. It's a heroic story, but, but somehow, in some way, we have turned Christianity and the scriptures into this static set of principles that we should live by. And then we wonder why the Bible is viewed by so many as a self-help book. It's just another book with some good principles to help you in the midst of your trouble. And we've lost the drama. We've lost the story of the scriptures of this heroic God. The case in point, we just finished Advent season. What have we done with the manger scene? We've explained it as this kind of clean, sanitized, peaceful, tranquil, cute picture and story of baby Jesus being born. And we fail to read Revelation chapter 12 that describes what was really happening when Jesus was born. In Revelation 12, it describes a great red dragon. It describes a woman who is about to give birth. And it describes this great red dragon waiting as this woman gives birth so that it can devour the child. 
Now you say, did that really happen? You know what we read in the Gospel of Matthew? That when Jesus was born, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and told Joseph to take Jesus and Mary to Egypt because, quote, King Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Now, why is it Revelation 12 a standard part of our birth narrative readings? I think in part, we don't know what to do with it. We just don't know what to do with a great red dragon waiting to devour a child that's being born. And we don't know what that means. And certainly I would say, in our culture here in the West, it doesn't fit into a sanitized, functional, non-supernatural version of Christianity that has taken hold of our culture. You say, why does that happen? Well, I don't know that we in the West have woken up from the so-called Enlightenment. But you know what the Enlightenment was? That was a movement that said everything can be rationally explained, logically explained, and there is no supernatural. And I think in many ways, we're still asleep in that slumber and not woken up to the supernatural. And so we're forced to go find, should I say, that desire inside of us for battle, for story, for sacrifice, for rescue in Hollywood. Not realizing that the story of rescue, the story of battle, the story of sacrifice, of blood being shed, of an oppressed people being rescued is right here. It's the story of the scriptures. No wonder the church in the West is declining and the church in Africa is exploding. Now, we learned last weekend at the missions conference that the church in Africa is exploding. One of the problems they have is it's growing so quickly, so many churches are being planted that they got to find pastors. Pastors are being raised up, and as we learned, they have less than an hour of Bible training. They don't understand the Bible, so there's this need for the scriptures to be explained and, and for the framework of the Bible to be laid out, for there to be a solid foundation of theology so that they can teach it accurately and not hurt people. That's real, and that is 100% accurate. But I will say that the church in Africa has something that we need. And that is they get the battle. They understand the battle. They understand supernatural. They understand that there's this battle in the heavenly realms waging that gets played out on earth. They get that. And yet our culture has tended to stamp that out and remove the supernatural and sanitize Christianity and make it just a set of principles that we subscribe to. There's this classic scene in the movie The Incredibles where uh, Mr. Incredible, the father, is watching his baby son Jack-Jack one evening. And he falls asleep on the couch, head tilted back, and he starts snoring. And little baby Jack-Jack 
sees out there on the patio, is lured out onto the patio by this raccoon that's out there. And the little baby Jack-Jack crawls and makes his way outside onto the patio. And what ensues is this epic battle fight between baby Jack-Jack and this raccoon. And baby Jack-Jack starts to figure out his superpowers. And I mean, it's just raging out on the back patio. And dad is on the couch asleep and snoring. Does that describe you? There is a battle raging. And I know this is even, this is uncomfortable language for us here in the West to hear. But the scriptures speak of it. There's a battle that is raging in the heavenly realms that is being played out here on this earth. Are you aware of it? Are you asleep to it? Let me just speak to fathers for a second. Your children are not fighting raccoons and figuring out their superpowers. But I can tell you that your children are in a battle. What they are facing as they grow up is not just some poor moral decisions, don't do this, don't do that. It's a battle. Fathers, are you awake to it? Are you aware of what the rising generation is facing? Or have you fallen asleep to it? There's a battle raging. But let me just be clear. This isn't a battle that's up for grabs. Okay, this is a battle that has already been won through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, this is not a battle we fear. It's a battle that is played out. I say this, the battle's won, but there are live skirmishes playing out as the victory of this battle is played out fully in human history until Jesus returns. So what do you need to wake up to? First, the real battle that we're facing. But second, the real comfort. Look at verse 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. This describes Israel's exile in Babylon. And notice how it's described. They, did, they didn't just sit from the cup of affliction. They drank a full cup of affliction. And some of you know that well. You're not just sipping affliction. You feel like you're guzzling it. And you've been drinking it. That's where God's people are. And they're staggering because of it. And where did it leave them? Same place it can leave you and I. Look at verse, look at verse 18. There's none to guide her. Among all the sons she has born, there's none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. They were feeling helpless. There was no one to help. There was no one to guide. They felt helpless in this battle of affliction. Verse 19, these two things have happened to you. Who will console you? 
devastation and destruction, famine and sword, who will comfort you? They're feeling comfortless in this battle of affliction. They're not feeling any comfort. Verse 20. Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Fainting. That, that's, a, that's imagery of, of being hopeless. They're feeling hopeless in this affliction. No help, no comfort, no hope. And that will leave you staggering. It, it's, it's a very vivid term that accurately describes, not when you're just sipping affliction, but when you've been just drinking cups of affliction, it leaves you staggering. It leaves you feeling like you're walking through quicksand. There's this general malaise that's just fallen over your life that you can't get free from. So what do they need to wake up to? What do you need to wake up to if you're staggering in affliction? Verse 12. I, I am he who comforts you. Verse 16, and I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand. God alone comforts. But what does that comfort look like, or what is the comfort of God? Because I think we, when we hear that, the imagery we can think of is maybe a friend that becomes the shoulder that we can lean on and just share the heavy affliction we're in and feel like there's somebody with us. And that certainly is comfort, and that certainly applies to the comfort of God. But let me just show you here that the comfort of God goes much deeper than that. His comfort's not just coming alongside of you saying, I'm so sorry, this hurts so much, I'm here with you. It's that, but it's so much deeper. After he promises comfort, he begins to ask a few probing questions. Verse 12, who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Verse 13, and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? God's addressing with them here. They're, they're staggering in their affliction. And he's saying, and you're, you're fearful, but why are you fearing this person and that person? You shouldn't fear. Why? Verse 13. Have you forgotten the Lord, your maker, your maker, creator, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth? Have you forgotten the one that made you and made this entire earth? Verse 15, I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that waves roar. God's saying, I'm the one that stirs and I'm the one that, that creates situations. I'm the one doing this. Verse 16, saying to Zion, you are my people. I created you, I made you. As we looked at several weeks ago, I create calamity, I create and stir up events, but understand that you are my people, 
Verse 17, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. I want you to notice what that verse does not say. It doesn't say, you have drunk from the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar who brought you into exile. Now that was true. They were brought into exile by this pagan king into Babylon. But notice what God says here. No, you haven't drunk from his hand of affliction. You, you have drunk from my hand. And what that means, and here is the deep comfort that God is bringing to his people and that he brings to you today. You are not owned by your affliction. Your affliction does not own you. God owns you and God owns your affliction. You belong to God and you belong and your affliction belongs to God. What happens is when, when we think the battle is between us and the affliction, right? when you reduce the battle to you and your affliction, then you start to look for man-made resources that can lift you out of the pain of that affliction, whether it's a substance or a relationship or a hobby, whatever it may be. But that's not where the battle's taking place. If you're afflicted, your battle is not with your affliction. The real battle is believing that God owns that affliction and owns you and that you belong to him and that affliction belongs to him. It's in his hands, but he fights for the cause of his people and he is, he is working on you through you by that affliction. Our dear friends adopted a little boy from Uganda when he was three years old. We just recently got to see them. And he was, this little boy was abandoned at birth. And so he grew up for those three years in an orphanage. And he was there until our friends actually went over and adopted him and brought him home. And because he was abandoned at birth, and because they had adopted him, they were counseled to take on some what we would say are non-traditional ways of discipline. So a very traditional way of discipline is that when a child misbehaves or a child disobeys, they are sent to time out. And then after some uh, period of time, they can come out of time out. But because this child had been abandoned for three years was in an orphanage, they were counseled that when he disobeys or when he acts out, when he does not obey, that they weren't to send him to time out, they were to embrace him and hold him. And what was interesting in talking to our friends is that just like any child when they get sent to time out, try to get out early, right? They try to get out of time out early, they said the same thing would happen. That their, that their son, as they, as they embraced him and held him in their arms, would try to wiggle away and get out early. And they wouldn't let him wiggle away. And the message was loud and clear. As they embraced him, they were embracing the affliction of abandonment that in many cases 
was driving him to act out. And it was clear that he wasn't being sent away. He wasn't being abandoned. He was being embraced. And so it is with God here with his people. He says, listen, you didn't get sent away into exile for a 70-year time out. That's how long. It was several generations of exile in Babylon. He said, no, I didn't send you away. I didn't send you into time out. I didn't abandon you into Babylon so you would feel it and figure out how to return and follow me and obey. He says, no. I embraced you in my arms when you arrived in Babylon, when you arrived in exile. I embraced you because I embraced your affliction. And the affliction was one that I owned. And I embraced you to love you and to change you and to shape you. It wasn't time out. It was time in. And so it is in your affliction. Your affliction is not God sending you to time out because you misbehave. It's not God sending you away or abandoning you. It's God embracing you and comforting you in that affliction, knowing that it has great purpose. What do you need to wake up to? The real battle, the real comfort, and finally the real blessing. Look at verse 22. Thus says the Lord, your Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Let me just pause there. God pleads your cause. And we're going to see how in a second. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering. The bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors. What's the cup of wrath? Well, it's the cup of God's holy and just wrath poured out on sin. So the question becomes, then how did God take it away from them? I mean, they were in exile because of their sin. So if they're in exile because of their sin, then they deserve the cup of wrath. How did God take it away from them? And it says put it on their tormentors. That Their tormentors were clearly in sin, didn't know God, objects of wrath. But why? how could he take it away from them? Well, Jesus is presented with this cup in the Garden of Gethsemane several hours before he would hang on the cross. And the Gospels tell us that as he was presented with this cup in the Garden of Gethsemane, that he pulled away from his disciples to be by himself. He fell on his face and he prayed. And this is what he said. My Father, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Why did Jesus hesitate? 
As this cup of wrath was presented to him, why did he hesitate? Now, many would say because of the physical torture that he was about to experience. And it was awful. He was beat. He was flogged. Large chunks of flesh were ripped off his back in the flogging. As he was hung on the cross, nails were driven through his hands, through his feet. A crown of thorns was put on his head that was piercing his scalp. And then as he hung there, the suffocation of trying to push up with feet that were nailed to the cross to try to breathe, you say, well, clearly that's why he hesitated. The answer is no. That's not the primary reason. Jesus wasn't in agony because of what the wrath of men could do to him. He wasn't in agony because of what these people would do to him in the crucifixion. No, Jesus was staring at the fully fermented, undiluted wrath of God his Father. He was staring down the barrel of heaven's infinite wrath. That's why he hesitated. In his full humanity. But Jesus drank that cup. And he drank it, as verse 17 says, down to the dregs. You know what the dregs are? The dregs are the little grains of coffee or tea that are left at the bottom of the cup that nobody wants. It's the residue that nobody, including yourself, wants to drink. And yet it says that Jesus drank the cup of wrath down to the dregs. There was no residue left. There was no drop left. So when the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, he meant it. Jesus drank damnation dry for those who are in Christ. He drank it dry. The cup of damnation, the cup of wrath does not remain for those of you that are in Christ. Now, if you're not in Christ, that cup remains for you. So you say, what is left for the believer in Christ to drink? What cup is left for you then? 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? All that's left for you is the cup of blessing. There is no cup of wrath left. All that's left for you is the cup of blessing. Now, if Jesus drank the cup of wrath, and all that's left for you is the cup of blessing, this has two very powerful, profound implications for your life. First, 
included in that cup of wrath that Jesus drank, especially with the emphasis that he drank it down to the dregs. Included in that cup was the punishment for the most serious, cruel, perverted sins that you can imagine. We do a great job of classifying sins, don't we? We have the respectable categories, and we have the less respectable categories. And let me just apply the imagery. We have the, the, the liquid in the cup category, and then we have the dregs category that no one wants to talk about. Because it feels like it's crossed the line into utter heinousness and perversion. And so we create these categories of the, ah, the liquid, the death, the, the little more respectable, and the dregs. Jesus drank them both. Which means that he drank the cup of wrath. For the prostitute that is ODing on heroin on the corner of Philip's Highway, who turns to him by faith. And he drank the cup of wrath for the trafficker that maybe drove her into that situation, who turns to him by faith. And he drank the cup of wrath for the wealthy businessman who's married with three kids, who lives in a nice home and drives a nice car, but who is secretly addicted to porn, who turns to him by faith. There's no category of sin. Jesus drank the cup of wrath to the dregs, which means that there is no sin other than the one of unbelief, but there's no sin that is unforgivable. Second implication. If he drank the cup of wrath to the dregs and all that's left for you is the cup of blessing, then there is no pit of despair in the midst of affliction into which you are abandoned by God. During World War II, the Ten Boom family harbored Jews in their home to hide them. The Gestapo finally figured it out. The Gestapo arrested the elderly father and the two grown daughters. The elderly father died and these two daughters, Corey and Betsy, were put in a concentration camp where they experienced unimaginable suffering. As Betsy Ten Boom was approaching her own death, she was still compelled to share the love of Christ with those around her, but she said this to her sister, Corey. She said, we must tell them what we have learned here. We must tell them that there is no pit so deep 
that he is not deeper still. They will listen to us, Corey, because we have been here. These words are recounted in, in Corey's book, The Hiding Place, and they're moving, they're inspirational, but how do we know they're true? How, how do we know that there's no pit so deep that he is not deeper still? Because Jesus Christ drank the cup of wrath down to the dregs and experienced a horrific separation from his Father that we will never be able to comprehend. And praise God that if you're in Christ, you will never have to experience. And so when you are in the pit of affliction, you can be assured, because Jesus drank the cup of wrath down to the dregs, that you can never descend into a pit that goes deeper than where he's at or where he's been. Because he has been to the depth and back. And what that also means is that if he drank the cup of wrath and all that's left for you is the cup of blessing, your affliction is part of that cup of blessing. Because there's no other cup you drink from. Which means that everything in your life, including the affliction, is part of that cup. You drink from one cup, and it's the cup you'll drink from today. It's the cup of blessing. It's the cup of the Lord's cup. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we're asleep. We confess that we slumber. We confess that we're in many ways just living quiet lives of desperation. We confess that we need to be woken up. Woken up to the battle that's taking place in the heavenlies that gets played out here on earth. We need to be woken up to the comfort that you bring and that we're not owned by our affliction. That you own us, you own our affliction. That we belong to you. And Father, as we are about to experience, we need to be reminded that you don't abandon us, you don't punish us. If we're in Christ, that's all happened to Jesus. that we drink from one cup before you, and it's the cup of blessing. Would you help us to see our life, the good, the bad, the affliction, as part of that cup? Because you plead the cause of your people, and even now, Jesus, you plead the cause of those you came to redeem. May we be assured of this as we continue to sing and as we eat and drink. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.